How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. So today's guest is a woman who many of us will feel very familiar with. If you're an avid ABC or SBS news watcher or perhaps a reader of Australian Gourmet Traveller or even the weekend paper magazine Liftouts, then you will definitely know the name Indira Naidu. She's a globally educated school ducks, record youngest news anchor and widely published author and journalist. So Indira has been a high achiever all of her life, but none of her accolades could have prepared her for the tragedy of her younger sister taking her own life. It unfurled a grieving process that most of us wish to never encounter, but simultaneously it stripped back the noise of the modern day narrative to allow her time to discover the natural world and the greater universe with a hunger and a raw clarity that has since been captured in her book for all of us to learn just a little about ourselves with and the world that holds us. Her recently released book, The Space Between the Stars, was penned with evocative honesty and a truthfulness that assures us all many things, but especially that there's an unquestionable healing power within the natural world and that equilibrium and turbulence can in fact coexist in harmony. Hello. Hello, Jade. What an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) More than anything else, I think what has happened from this process I've been through, I've always been someone who tends to live a little bit too much in the future. Next, mm. next, what are you planning? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And I think this experience in the last few years has made me a lot more present-based, which is a good thing, especially my husband would say too. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I like, I'm enjoying being in the present. It isn't a place I spend a lot of time in. Mm. And it's courageous to be in the present because it's not always um, – rosy and glossy as the future can be in our imaginations. It's it's real and raw and lumpy and ugly sometimes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but it also takes a lot of the pressure off not living in the future because in the future you're always having to make plans and make it stimulating and exciting. And, and when you live in the now, you can just rest and just relax and go, it's fine. You don't have to make any plan. It's just what it is right now. So just, I actually yeah. find it very calming. <laughs> mm. And do you think that's a result of a vibrantly lived life or do you think that that's a result of the circumstances over the last couple of years? Living the now definitely it is a way that I think your body and your mind reacts to grief. It just shuts you down. Mm. Uh, you, it, it just stops you in your tracks. And I guess that that means now is where you spend a lot of time because you find it hard to focus on the future, which step in which direction to take. And the past can be a bit too painful, uh, especially when you've lost a loved one. You don't want to go back there because that was when you had them. So in a way, the now is quite comforting because it's 
it's not muddied by anything. It's not muddied by the past and it's not muddied by the expectation, I guess, of the future. Mm. So your book is breathtaking and I actually, I'll admit, before I opened the pages I was a little bit daunted by what I would face because Mm. I know the reason for the creation of the book and I wasn't quite sure how you would navigate that to um, become a, a book that captured imagination and tapped into, you know, the greater healing power mm. of nature without it constantly being shadowed by this level of trauma. But you did. You, you've captured that balance beautifully. Um, and, in fact, one way I wondered whether this was done intentionally, but you share a factual story and then you provide insight into your what I can only assume is your internal mon- monologue via the use of italics and it has this effect of incredible intimacy. It feels sometimes a little bit contradictory in that you make one statement, which is the fact, and then you contradict it with your internal thought and it feels really brave but it also feels really intimate. Was that an intentional design it tends to be I think how I do write actually because the journalist in me wants to grapple with the fact the mm-hmm. re what I think is the reality than what I'm seeing what I'm hearing and then this writing this book because it was going to be splitting myself into a couple of people there was going to be the devastated sister there was going to be the writer, and then there was going to be someone who had the big perspective that hosting a national radio show during a pandemic with a million people every mm-hmm. night who were really gripped and agonised by loss and, and isolation. So I had these different perspectives over the last few years as well. So writing the book, I think it all they all came together. So you can almost feel that there is this grieving sister, but this writer that wants to get into her heart and, and pull it apart and look deeply and see what's in there and understanding, unfortunately, from a writer's point of view, that loss and grief and, and sadness and those extreme emotions make really good writing for a writer. And so even though it's really painful for the sister, the writer is almost relishing it because you know that you're never going to maybe have the situation of such extremity and actually being the writer in that body. And then the person that has perspective has been covering this as a news story for the last few years and seen the stories of the loss of the people going through extreme anxiety and, and unfortunately the, the many people who, who have taken their lives uh, when it mm. all got too much. That perspective also sat there as well. So it's interesting you say that, but I was I was sort of tossing between these three perspectives all the way through the book. Mm. And the outcome is beautiful because oh, it does you. feel intimate. Yeah, I think when one of the things with grief and if you are prepared to go there and sit with it which a lot of people aren't because they think it's going to be so dark and and so confronting and and it was for me there's no doubt about that but Mm. if you're prepared to sit with it you know uh which is probably close to what monks do when they go into deep contemplation when they they go into some of those very dark parts of them and the illumination comes. And what I discovered is I said to my grief counsellor, I had no idea that the answers to every question I was asking would already be within me. 
I, I didn't get it from anywhere else. It was always inside me. And I had to go through the darkness, though. I had to pull apart all that sediment and dig deep down. And I did. I, I found the light and I found the hope. And that was not where I was expecting to find it. And of course, being with nature was one of the ways that I cracked open that sediment to get to the heart of me. But that was the the miracle, I think, of the whole experience was that the answers always were within me if I was prepared to just sit with that uncomfortableness. Mm, so grief isn't something that I would say our culture th- thrives on or strives for or is even comfortable talking about. You know, it's, it's, um, it's awkward and it's filled with a sadness and a sorrow that not many people are willing to to trudge through and we certainly don't seek it out but in fact I've interviewed a couple of people who have said grief is part of well it's such a massive part of the entire process of all of us accepting that there is this journey that every living thing must go through and made more difficult I understand when it's circumstances that don't feel like they've followed the natural course of life but you know, of course, it's not possible for all of us to live forever and every living thing to live forever. And in fact, that beautiful cyclical journey or that natural process of things coming to an end is actually so important in our world. And actually, there would be benefit from all of us finding acceptance in that. And you've just said that if you're really comfortable to sit right in the murky sediment of it, it actually can show you things that you didn't realise you had in you. Mm. I wouldn't have told you before this happened to me that there was any way for me to feel closer to my sister. And I certainly wouldn't have thought I could feel closer to her in death because death is meant to be something that separates you from people Mm. and makes them further away from you. That's not been my experience at all. I feel closer to my sister now than I did when she was alive. I feel more in love with her. I I've I don't focus as we can with relationships with the living. You focus on all the frustrations and the things that annoy <laughs> you when they let you down or when it doesn't work out. And it's when they're human and fallible. Yeah. And in death, you're so forgiving. You 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 only think of the wonderful things and and celebrate the joyous parts of the, the the people that you love. And I don't think I understood that. This was my biggest death I've ever had in my life. And so I've never had to confront that idea that, uh, you know, just acceptance uh, is such an important part of when we're with people when we're all alive, but we don't do it very well. Mm-hmm. But in death, there is nothing else. Uh, you, you you have to pull on, you know, those those beautiful memories and draw on those. And writing a book in the way that I did by deliberately making myself in between the, 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 the present sadness and grief that I was going through, deliberately making myself go into the funnest, most joyous memories that we all had together when we were alive was a way for me to make myself do that. So rather Mm -hmm. than, you know, wallow in the loss, I could celebrate the joy. And what I found now, especially having a book, is that I can just keep talking about the joyous stories to anyone who wants to listen to them, (laughs) reading those chapters, and the joy just grows and grows sort of exponentially. Again, what I never would have understood as well. 
and some of these stories I didn't even remember until my sister died. I, I sort of, by making myself remember the joy, some of these memories came back. And even my other sister said, I forgot completely about that till I read it, you know, in your manuscript. And I quite love that idea that there is so much joy that we're just not willing to focus on, particularly when we're all alive. And it's so good to be able to go through this process because I, I just really feel joy whenever I hear her name, think about her, imagine her, um, her visually. It's just a joyous feeling that I have. It's exactly the word I would use to describe the way in which you talk about her and the stories that you share. They are joyful. And so even though there is this slightly um, dark shadow that lingers a bit because you know that they're reminiscent stories that are being told in the face of grief, Mm. there is this sense that they're leaping off the page and being brought to life. So that's the relationship that you now have with her. But do you think the process has led you to seek the joy in your living relationships now? Mm, Definitely. I think I'm generally much more contented uh, and and filled with much deeper gratitude than I was before this happened. Uh, I appreciate obviously my life a lot more Mm. as well. I I understand now what it is to be alive and what it is to be dead. Uh, I don't know if I had a concept of dead in the same mm. way and you know one of one of the the readings i came across was about encouraging people to live while you're alive and don't die until you're dead and i didn't quite understand that until i've gone through this process mm-hmm. don't die until you're dead and i realized that we don't just suck the marrow out of life in the way that yeah. we we should and that there is always this little bit of oh, I'm too old for that or I'm too tired for that or I can't be bothered or, no, I'll do it another time. Whereas when you're confronted by these big deaths in your life, I it's happened for me, you know, not and, again, not future thinking, which is what I used to do, but it's about the now is all you know you have. Mm-hmm. So is that who you want to be with? Is that where you want to be? Is that what you want to be doing? Well, if not, well, then don't. And, and do those things that do sort of sit on that list comfortably. It it makes life so much more clear, you know. You're just much mm. more clear. There's no fuzziness about, oh, I'm not sure. I, I really don't feel not sure about much anymore, which is, you know, sort of strange. I, I, I just trust and I know now how to listen to myself after going through this process. So I hear the voice a lot more strongly than maybe I allowed it to be heard. So I don't have that sense of going down a track that's uncomfortable because right at the beginning I would have much more now been aware that's not going to be right for you or that's not going to be the right person to hang out or that job or that work. Mm. um, I'm listening to myself better, I guess, and and nature has helped me listen, helped me be a bit quiet and not make as much noise and be a little bit better tuned to the vibrations around me. Mm. So that opens up a whole heap of questions. So you talk about that lots in your book and really that's the whole point of the book, I gather, and um, we talk about that a lot on Future Steading, which is about living like tomorrow matters, but often in in deep harmony with our sense of place and the country that we call home and that holds us. And the thing with that, though, is that it takes a whole lot of courage to shut out the what is often sort of vanilla or mediocre 
noise that surrounds us and energetically saps us and to have the courage to listen to not only ourselves but listen to sort of the energetic pull that we're we're part of and and really you're pushing upstream sometimes to use your own intuition and to follow your own sense and that can be a bit daunting and a bit scary and there's a couple of paragraphs in your book in the early start of the book that talks about the fact that you weren't sleeping very well at night so you were looking up at this enormous universe with the stars twinkling down on you and and you were needing to breathe during the day and so you'd put your shoes on and just head out and wherever you ended up is wherever you ended up but often it was under this beautiful big Morton Bay fig and so I would love to use that as a bit of a segue into uh, where you think humanity and society needs to go in order to rewrite the narrative that we're so accustomed to now to find place for ourselves and to find time for this healing power of the natural world. Jade, if anything, what the pandemic I think has done for a lot of us, particularly in the Western world, is given us, made us pause, made us slow down, made mm. us stop completely in some cases and not be so frenetic and move about so much and have to do what I had to do. I had my five kilometres around me and that was it. I had to make that my world. And at first, I think I say in the book, I thought that that was, you know, a reduction and a restriction, and now I realise I don't need anything more than that. You know, I don't need to keep jumping on a plane and going places. Uh, there's very few more exciting places, really, uh, than going to my tree. Um, it basically <laughs> rocks my boat. I wouldn't have probably understood that. I would have, I would have thought, yeah, you know, who's going to say no to hanging out in New York or going off to some exotic beach? before I had that experience. And the slowing down is a really important part of that connection with nature. And that, and part of the reason we've got ourselves in the problem that we have, uh, the destruction that we're causing the planet, is because we're so frenetic that we can't really see the effects of what we've done in, in real time. We have to wait 10 years, a generation, before we can see all those damaging little steps that if we were just slow or still, we would see them right in front of us. Like I said, every time I took a step, I saw the genocide I was causing all the ants because mm. I was conscious of it. I wasn't rushing somewhere else. I was watching each one of my footfalls and every one of those creatures had a life as important as my life. And by being still, I realised I wasn't separate from nature. I was part of nature. I mean, the tree is made up of exactly everything I'm made up of, you know, the oxygen and the carbon and the nitrogen. And its branches are my limbs, its sap is my blood, its bark is my skin. I just saw us as one in a way that before, even when I, you know, had an understanding of nature and I'm very passionate um, about the importance of nature, I didn't see that oneness so clearly and the way mm. that where my skin ended and the bark began, I don't see that anymore with my tree. And I certainly don't have that human ego about what's more important, me or the tree. You know, of course, mm. me, you know, the way we look at it. Now the tree is, well, much more important than me. I mean, it helps many, many more people than I help. 
it um, has been caring and looking after people longer than I'm going to be around for insects and birds and butterflies and ants and you name it, as well as anyone like me that takes comfort and solace under it. So it's much more important for me to keep the tree alive really almost than to keep me alive. And so that in itself makes is is the change we need in our perception of what nature is if we understand that nature is there to love us and how are we repaying this love by destroying it i mean it just doesn't make sense and you will not save what you do not love so mm-hmm. these relationships as soon as the love comes how can you possibly hurt anything that's natural part of the natural world and so i think that that is the, the the awareness that I think is shifting as we slow, as we become more still, and sadly as we see the extreme um, that our actions <coughs> are causing in a natural world, when it, whether it's floods or bushfires or whatever, I think we'll start asking, asking more of those questions. I think we all innately already know it. Mm. And when people read some of those stories in my book about how we fell in love with puddles as kids and feathers and we remember it. And the reason it gives us joy is because we miss doing that. We had a lot of fun. And I think we'd <laughs> well, love primal. to. I know. And I think we'd all still love to do it now, really. Why not fly a kite? Who wants to sit in an office? You know, really? No one, no one grows up and goes, I want to sit in an air-conditioned office under fluorescent lights. I mean, no one has that aspiration. But that's how Doing we all end up. 24-7. Yeah. So I think that first it is to make friends again and I think we've just lost the friendship connection with nature and just to remind ourselves that it's there to heal us, to help us. It was designed for that and we are part of it. We're not separate. And once that connection comes, the love will flow and you can only care for what you love. So I, I'm very conscious that the pandemic is actually going to have some some very positive impacts. Mm, Let's hope. Let's hope you are right. And so does that give you a sense of hope? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Just to see the way people have been responding to the book, I think it gives me that confidence. I would never have thought that people from all over, different walks of life, from it would be so moved by a tree. Dozens of people have already physically come to visit my tree. And and I love that it's not my tree anymore. It's everyone's tree. It's and everyone's tree. Yeah, they're leaving lovely floral remembrances for their loved ones, for my star girl. They want to know more about the tree. They want to, you know, all the bits of nature. You know, they want to start going kite flying and I, I love that, you know, that's almost that the book is giving people not only permission but a reminder that, yeah, that, that used to be fun. Why did I stop doing it? Yeah. So it, it, it does. It fills me more, with hope more each day. I'm, I'm sort of a bit blown away by it. And I think given that the majority of us are urban-based, it's all very well for me to sit on my country property in northern Victoria and talk about future steading. But actually it's really important to hear from people who are living right in the heart of the hustle-bustle city who have found ways to very simply within their reach, even if it is 5Ks when you're limited uh, because of COVID, um, to find this healing capacity right there 
Yeah. Most people in Australia and really most of the world are going to be living in mm. coastal urban locations, high rise, mm. very dense, very close to each other. It's it's probably going to be the best, most sustainable model for how we live with our increasing population on the planet. We're not going to have the space that lots of us in Australia have taken for granted. And we're going to have to find ways to live happily and comfortably and not feel that it's any loss. And I certainly don't feel any sort of loss. I just came from spending the weekend at a friend's country property in Berrie and as beautiful and as stunning as that part of the world is, when I came home, it was just as gorgeous in a different way. I didn't yeah. feel I was missing out on anything because of the way that I've brought plants into my home, into the windowsill, onto my balcony, made sure that I'm very lucky, made sure that I have lots of lovely natural light that will come through a window and feel that sun on my face. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to still feel that we have boundless space and light and, and greenery and nature if, if that's what we choose and how we choose to live. We don't have to live, you know, up against each other in these huge houses with no greenery around us or, or on top of each other in apartment blocks that don't have levels of greenery and, and, and open spaces within them. There are ways of designing our life to still feel that it's, it's natural and organic and that we're not letting, you know, the, the, the rest, it feel like a, a restriction like a loss and yeah I, I think that I, I sort of proved that to myself that having five kilometers felt like I had the whole world in my backyard. Yeah. You looked up at the stars and it's that reference to biophilia it's that um, scientific understanding that our primal needs are nurtured and responded to by what's around us. You say in your book just seeing my tree again makes me feel immediately nourished. I can gaze at it whenever I need. It can be my lighthouse on the headland. I feel my shoulders drop. My pulse rate slows. I notice my breathing relax. And I interviewed someone not long ago who said, without doubt, green is my favourite colour. And green, as we know, sits in the middle of the colour wheel, so it, it doesn't sort of sit out on the edges where we might be slightly um, antsy. And there are more, my understanding is there are more uh, shades of green than any other colour and um, so an exercise that we now do in our household is whenever we're feeling a bit heightened we go and sit somewhere it doesn't really matter where just outside somewhere and we seek the colour green in as many different shades as we can possibly find it and it instantly puts you back in the moment and and soothes you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely uh... I didn't understand fully the impact of green as a colour until I spent a bit of time, you know, reading and researching it. Mm. And I've always been drawn to the colour green and, of course, I, I, I've understood about biophilia and our innate need to connect with nature, again, intellectually. But I think this was the first time, Jade, that I just allowed myself to just be a creature of the planet rather mm. than a human or a journalist or anything like that, just to allow myself to feel a connection and understand and try to look at why. Why was that making me uncomfortable? Why was this where I wanted to flee to and hang out with, you know? And to trust it. If that's how you feel, 
just trust it. As I say, no one, when they have a holiday, says I'm going to pitch a tent in the middle of the freeway or the the, the main St- George Street in Sydney. They want to go <laughs> into a field or on near the beach or in the forest. Why? Why is it that we have when we have time off, we want to flee from where we are most of the time? Why don't we just create a place that we want to be? You know, rather than just living from holiday to holiday in this some mm. other location. So. I think we just have to trust that what are you actually feeling? Some, you know, um, and again, it can be really hard with social media because you have see images of you want to be at this, you know, exotic location in this luxurious setting. But deep down, I think we all just want to maybe just be sitting by a little babbling creek or a little crashing wave with a tree above us, a fire burning in the fire pit. And I think we're pretty all pretty happy with that. Uh, trust how you're feeling, what what makes you feel better and what makes you feel worse and obviously, you know, go to the good place. Yeah, that's right. The circumstances that uh, unfurled all of this were tragic and shocking and I've no doubt that before you got to the place that you're at now where you're so beautifully and articulately explaining the closeness that you have with your sister and the joy that you can now see the world with and the connection you have to the natural world. There was this journey of grief. Jane, grief is a thing that I've discovered doesn't actually end. It's It just mm-hmm. constantly changes and evolves. So I don't know if I'll ever get to a place where I'll say, hey, my grief is gone, I'm over it, I'm, I've, I've moved on. There are different stages of grief, different intensities. And again, I I studied grief when I did sociology at university. So I studied the Kubler-Ross sort of, you know, grief wheel and acceptance and bargaining and anger. And and one of the things that I didn't think it ever did well, and this was interesting, is acceptance for me when I was going through my grief wasn't enough. Just to accept that something had happened wasn't making me feel better. Sure, I can accept that my sister's dead. That doesn't help me at all. And I realised, and now a lot of the Greek uh, grief specialists are talking about this concept of meaning. So after acceptance, Mm. how do you find meaning in the loss, in, in the grief? And that was what this book for me was all about. It was going to that stage where I knew... I had to find the meaning in why this happened because especially with someone when they take their life, you can sit in the why and and actually Mm -hmm. lose yourself in the why and and go a little crazy yourself because I don't think you can ever answer that question, why? With Mm -hmm. most things, not only with this particular loss for me but with most things. Why is a really bad question to ask in in a way. It's like it's happened, it's done, move on. Okay, how? Wh- no what are you going to do about it? And I think mm-hmm. that that for me was the important part of my process of grief. It wasn't just replaying the loss, you know, because you do do that as well and, and the why, which is not helpful, and then sitting with the missing, that person just not being there when you want to pick up the phone and call them and remembering, oh, yeah, that's right, they're not there in that way anymore. But when I looked at the meaning and the meaning for me was to understand understand my sister a lot better who she actually was rather than what I wanted her to be or what she thought she needed to be understand also about as you said that this cycle of life and death and how we're all going through we're all in line 
Mm. You know, we're all in the line right. at some stage. We <laughs> don't know right. when it's going to happen, <laughs> but you and I are already in that line. Mm. And, again, it's very uncomfortable in our current society to think about death as so present and and they're hovering near us all the time. Or only as a negative. Only as a negative, but exactly. As we, I was place. saying before, what it does is for me it, it enlivens me. It actually makes me feel more alive. And when I think that I had 48 years with my sister and a lot of people can think I was robbed, you know, we were meant to grow old together. I could have had another 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I think about those ants that only have six to seven days and I had 48 <laughs> years and I'm feeling greedy. I'm feeling cheated. Really? Wow. You could have had six or seven days. How would you have felt then? Oh, yeah, that would have been pretty bad. 48 mm-hmm. years is actually quite a long time. But how did you spend it? How how did you use that time? Did you use it the best way you could have? Could you have could you have done different things in a different way? So I think the concept of time and how much time you have, being conscious of death is really important because you don't fritter away time the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, every moment with everyone is so much more important to me now. And, you know, even this time you and I, you know, this is the first time we're ever meeting. We may not meet again, I'm not sure, but... Right now in this moment, this is where I choose to be and this is who I want to be with. I'm not thinking about the next, the next, the next, the way maybe I would have in the past. So mm, It's an I active think, decision. Yeah, it's, it's gratitude. Um, and, it's, and it's life is not a gift that everyone gets. I think I've always thought about what life is, is to just learn as much as you can. Like I'm a, a really obsessive learner. I'm very curious. And so that hasn't changed. I think that... That was always what I thought life was about. That's what I still think life is about, just learning as much as you can, you know, and, yeah, and, and the joy that comes from that of knowing stuff and learning and experiencing as well. But I think what has changed is the things that I want to learn are quite quite different in a way, you know. They're... I've always been interested in going internally and finding all the salute, you know, the, seeing how much you already know, how much is already in your DNA that's there just to reveal yeah. itself yeah. rather than finding external ways of knowing. And I think I'm more conscious of that, is that most of it's already in me. I just have to unlock it. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you had to unlearn anything throughout this process? Um, I'm not very good, as I explained in the book, of being someone who doesn't know, who's who's not leading, who's not the big sister, that doesn't have the answers. I've had to unlearn all that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, even though I've learnt a lot in this process, it's made me realise how little I actually know mm-hmm. and that I want to spend as much time with as many people to learn everything they know so that... You know, I'm 54 now and maybe if I'm lucky I've got another 30 years, but there's so much I want to know and learn. And I was so lucky during my book to spend time with people who were not only experts in their particular fields of endeavour and academic pursuits, but they were experts in living. They, And that was all random, but they were all amazingly spiritual, connected contented people 
And that was a complete fluke that, that usually sometimes maybe doesn't happen. So I, spending time with an, the ant man or the feather lady, I didn't only learn about feathers, but I learned yeah. about their insights. So their 40 or 50 years they then shared with me about how you accept and, and go through these very dark, you know, periods and, and how you make sense of it. So I feel in a lot of ways that I was very, um, what a gift that people gave you their knowledge, but also mm-hmm. that amazing worldly spiritual experience as well. So mm-hmm. I'm very addicted to that. I have to admit, it's really good. And I, and I want to get more of that. I imagine before all of this happened, your life was full, very full, but you're a very conscious and awake individual. So I imagine you had some fairly structured rituals or rhythms within your day-to-day. Has that changed or been enhanced at all in the last couple of years? I I, I realised that I spent a lot of time trying to artificially enhance the feelings I was having, which is interesting. I would, you know, book uh, a, 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 a get-together with friends and I'd invite five people rather than one and just get lots of input and interaction with them so I'd feel hyper-stimulated and, you know, excited and and I because and I, I'm a very social beast but I really did that to quite an extreme and I would I would have a drink or I have a couple of drinks, maybe a couple more drinks than I needed to actually as well to heighten that experience. And what I've gone through is I realised that I can feel the same sense of stimulation and drunkenness mm. uh, by Euphoria. sitting in that green radiance of my tree. Uh, yeah, intoxication I call it in the book. I feel intoxicated without any drugs or outside, you know, from other people's stimulus being injected into me just um, by being aware of the nature around me. So that's quite really rare to feel for me, you know, that I don't need to put any other substance in my body or any other input from someone else and I get that sense of intoxication. So that's definitely something that's changed. Uh, and that walk to my tree is, uh, you know, three or four times a week I can do it. Uh, that's just like the best drug ever or it's the, best girlf- <laughs> yeah, the best girlfriend you can hang out with, you know. I'm going to hang out with my tree. I'm just so excited by that. So that's been quite a change, I guess. And has it been more than just the tree? I mean, you, you talk about the stimulation that comes from feeling cool breeze in the afternoon coming off the ocean or looking up at the stars and mm. feeling so humbled and insignificant by it and, you know, genuinely seeking small, tiny changes in you know, blooming flowers or whatever it mm. might be. I was watching a dog the other day and he was sitting at the cafe under his owner's chair and a breeze would pick up. A breeze that I'd n- never normally notice because I'd be talking or drinking or eating or something. And I noticed the breeze and how it moved through and how it went along the footpath and picked up a little bit of leaf and some other little bits of dust particles. And then it passed over the dog and his little ear just crooked yeah. up and the hairs just <laughs> moved ever so lightly. 
and it was just the most blissful thing and I could feel that air through him and I was a lot more conscious of it and seeing how he was enjoying what a, what scents and sounds were coming on that little breeze and those sorts of things, yeah, I don't know if I would have noticed to quite the same extent. And I say it centres around the tree because the tree is really almost the, the font of all knowing and knowledge but then, yes, it gives me insight into all these other aspects of nature, you know, that are around all the time as well. But there is something very special about the force of the tree itself where, yeah, I, I, I am drawn to it probably more than in any other bits of nature. Um, and so a day where I don't see it and I'm not in its presence, I, I really notice it, I really feel it. Wow, it feeds you, it nourishes you, fills your mm-hmm. cup. The Moreton Bay magnificence. <laughs> So we live in a world where being awake is not frowned upon, but the preference of the system is for us to be the almighty vanilla. How do we wake ourselves up without going through tragic circumstances? How do we get the next generation to be awake and to conscious, to be conscious, not sucked into the endless lure of screens and um, belonging and conforming Mm. it's hard (laughs) it's it is really hard and I I've got so many luxuries you know even the luxury of doing what I've been able to do even within my terrible loss and my grief I still had a full-time job I still have a comfortable home I live in a a very you know comfortable part of, of the world so for me to explore these things came a little bit more easily. There wasn't a lot of risk involved there mm. and loss, financial or, or whatever, or time the way it would be for someone who's, you know, so overscheduled and jobs and three kids and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I, I get how difficult it is. It is baby steps. It is baby, baby steps. It might just start with a little cactus in a little pot on your windowsill. That's it. If that's all you can bring into your world, it can really open up a crack of light that can come through and watching how it grows and how the new shoot comes and, you know, watering it every couple of days, watching how the sun jumps off it, that, you know, just to be present with that and to see how you're keeping this living thing alive in an environment you may think, oh, you know, there's nothing can grow here, you know. I think it's that's what it is. It's how it started with me, with my balcony plants, seeing amongst all this concrete that I could keep green things alive and that yeah. they could be nourishing and beautiful and, and then attract Inedible. other insects and creatures to them, you know. So it's about don't think a lot of people think too big too soon, you know. Let's pack up the house and jump in a caravan and travel around Australia for three years. Yeah. Uh, most of us just cannot, can't do that immediately. But think of those little things, you know, the next time you walk down the footpath, look down and pick up that little feather, you know, and stop and feel it blow blow on it and see how it moves and, and feel the featheriness of it and smell it and stroke it against your cheek. Uh, that in itself can just be your particular way, you know, of going into this path to divinity. I mean, it is the divine. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's pretty mind-blowing how how beautiful these things are. And they're, they're right under our nose. Every minute of our day, 
all around us. I'm not, I don't point out anything that every, no one else sees around them every day, but mm. I look at a puddle so dim, differently now, you know, these mirrored portals to another universe, you know, that's what they are. We, mm. we can think of them that way. We don't have to think of them these muddy little things that you can't, you know, they'll splash up and get your pants dirty and then I'll have to pay for dry cleaning. We choose <laughs> to think of it that way. If we think that this is going to be this fun little wonderful of splash and magic, that's what it will be. So Relieved childhood. Yeah. Oh, Indira, before I uh, wrap up, You've so eloquently explained yourself as a curious creature of the earth, which i got to say sounds like something we should all be striving for. Have you got one little pearl of wisdom that give people a sense of hope in what can otherwise sometimes feel like a world of overwhelm? Almost everything that you want to be and feel is just a matter of you giving yourself permission to to do that. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as that. I know it sounds sort of crazy, but if if you want to go and walk to a tree today, just go and do it. You will find the time. You find the time for all the boring, dull things in your life that you have to do. You schedule that in. Uh, just say <laughs> this half an hour I'm finding my tree down the street and that's where you're going to find mum. I'm going to be hanging out there for half an hour if you need me you know, mm. and then it happens. Little by little. Yeah. One foot in front of the other. I wish the book all the very best. It is a beautiful read. So for anyone, I'll pop it in the notes below um, because I am three quarters of the way through it now and I've loved every single page. I've even read it while I've been sitting at the side of the soccer pitch watching my yeah. kids play soccer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's pretty telling. So that's a wrap of episode one for season five. I'm sorry it has taken me so darn long to get this back into your ears. Primarily I've been busy with a book tour for the Future Steading book and getting our very first berry you pick harvest season underway here at Black Barn Farm. Nevertheless, we are back on deck. We have got 15 episodes almost all recorded but certainly uh, ready to come to you and your ears wherever you are over the next six months. They'll come out at this point, I'm thinking they will come out every fortnight. Next week we are going to bring you a conversation with a gorgeous lady by the name of Courtney who runs Woodstock Flower and she is really a bit of a driving force behind revolutionising what a localised grain food system can look like is quite a gem. Till then, have a beautiful week. Go gently. 